Welcome to this episode of Halftime Scholars, the series that features the interesting work of independent and emerging scholars. I'm your host Suren. On this episode, we speak with Dr. Amanda Shelstig, whose research explored what stand-up comedy in Zimbabwe can tell us about resistance and subjectivity. Through her immersive fieldwork into stand-up comedy as a culture, the study discovers the ways in which the comedian, audience, and stand-up sets can operate politically. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you for joining Halftime Scholars. Thank you for having me. So maybe uh, if you can walk us through what your research journey was like before your PhD, what sort of work did you do and how did you get into your current research? Uh, Absolutely. So I'm one of those researchers that had semi-straight roads. So Actually, um, once I'd handed in my undergraduate dissertation, I got encouraged to start doing a master's. And in my master's, I got encouraged to continue on with doing a PhD on the same topic. I didn't get in and get funding straight away. So I was working outside of academia for a little bit for a year whilst trying to get some funding. But I knew sort of since my master's that I wanted to do a PhD And my PhD originally built a lot on the topic that I was doing for my master's thesis research. So I was looking at for my master's how specifically Trevor Noah's stand-up comedy had worked to resist uh, representations of Africa in development discourses of this idea of the starving African other and how he plays with that in his comedy. And that's where my research started and where I started interesting myself in stand-up comedy and the African continent and then from there actually through originally wanting to do PhD research in a very similar area looking at comedy and Africa more broadly I did some field work studies where I went to Edinburgh Fringe and also to Zimbabwe and South Africa to get a general sense of what was going on, what are people joking about, what what are people talking about. And it's through that process that I realized that what interested me the most at that point in time was the way in which Zimbabwean stand-up comedians were resisting um, within that context, partially because Zimbabwean stand-up comedy really brings together those notions that you find within international politics that are to do with the way that the everyday impacts the political and the everyday impacts the international. You can see very clearly in a Zimbabwean context how political politics, the policies and the state impacts people's everyday lives and therefore how comedy is intervening and operating in that context. So that would be broadly my my quite simple journey into to research. Although that might be simplifying it a little bit to say simple. <laughs> it's a very unique and interesting topic. Like you think of uh, stand-up comedy and political representation and I guess the, the field work you've done to the average person, it might be, you know, in two opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of research, but it seems you've been able to combine it quite, uh, quite nicely. So from that backdrop and from that position, uh, mm-hmm. what inspired you to get into researching the relationship between stand-up comedy and political in- intervention in Zimbabwe specifically? Yeah, so it, it really came out of going to Zimbabwe and going to stand-up comedy shows there and seeing what people were joking about. Uh, it really interested me the way the link between 
politics and the everyday and politics and comedy was incredibly clear in the country. I think a good example is when I was there in 2018, there was an increase on taxes on online transfers. And almost as soon as that policy came out, people started going to the store and hoarding food. You started to see empty shelves. You started to see queues outside the stores because people were preparing for something that could potentially happen following that increase for, you know, making sure that there wasn't another hyperinflation situation. And that leads to a situation where you can jo be joking about the everyday, you know, you can be joking about lack of electricity and that still being political and that being quite obviously political in a sense as where joking about electricity in Sweden has political connotations, but not necessarily in that obvious link that an everyday person quite clearly can see the link between those two topics. I guess when you mentioned the the everyday, if we go back to your original master's work um, and also the everyday in the, in the Zimbabwean context. So when you did visit some of these say stand-up comedy clubs, what are some of the things they were talking about? Uh, who are some of the standout comedians you may have seen? Uh, what was that scene like when you went in for the first time? So when I went in for the first time, I actually first went at a particular point in time because there was a comedy festival going on in the capital at that point in time. So I knew that I would be able to find some comedy. I wasn't necessarily aware of to what extent comedy existed in Zimbabwe when I first went there for field work. So I went to, to one of the big comedy shows that they had there during that festival and I think at that first point in time, because comedy is so context-based, I didn't understand very much of it. A lot of it, in hindsight, were about things like they have a system where they have an electronic money called EcoCash, and it was about the EcoCash. It was about queuing for things. It was, you know, about that type of um, everyday activity, but I didn't necessarily understand the context or the nuances of it being so new to the country and then I from being there from talking to comedians at that show I figured out where more stand-up comedy was happening and operating in the country I was able to go to more shows and I think to a large extent there's things like I said that are very context specific you know that are to do with the queuing and things like that but there are also things that are broader topics there's a lot of joking about dating which obviously isn't Zimbabwe specific we date all over the world about relationships about being married about not being married about being single you know a lot of that type of comedy going on as well uh, but then also related to the context in Zimbabwe so what is dating like in Zimbabwe what is it like if you're going to a restaurant and uh, electricity disappears or if you're struggling to have a car in a country it's a very car based sort of infrastructure there are different ways to make yourself around but the things about oh, having a car when you're trying to pick up someone that you're dating and uh, all that type of things as well as jokes about the president and about politics more specifically like in most countries where we also make fun of president and politics or prime ministers and politics as well. So in many ways, it's not 
I don't want to say it's not unique, but it's not necessarily unique in the broad topics it discusses, even though it's unique in the way that it discusses it and the way that it relates to the laws and regulations that are in that country and in the specific context and nuances of how people speak about those things in that country. Yeah, that's very interesting, actually. And uh, it's, it's inter interesting that you mention uh, the, the, the specific context and the nuances, but also the broader generalized uh, forms of comedy comedy that you know you would speak about uh, everywhere else i'd like to pick up on the uh, the question of uh, the context and the nuances so how did you at a certain point of time when when you may have been uh, you know watching uh, different stand up comedians uh, as part of your research maybe even just for uh, for leisure uh, as well. At what point did you notice that you were actually getting these nuances, that you were, you know, getting these contexts? And how did that transition happen? Did that sort of click in your mind at, at a certain point? So I think what was really important for my research actually was that I went to Zimbabwe twice. So I was in Zimbabwe for one month uh, since 2018. And at that point, I watched shows, but I also interviewed stand-up comedians and comedians and artists in the country. Um, and then I came back a year later, spent a longer period of time there. And I think, you know, having gone through those interviews, having looked at that material, having had them, having been there one time before and kept up with the politics of the country that was going on at that point in time, I was better equipped to understand the nuances when I came back the second time. I could notice almost an immediate difference in how much I enjoyed the comedy the second time compared to the first time. And I think that's just partially about engaging and emerging a bit more, but also about having had a lot of the comedy explained to me at some point by the people who performed it um, and drawn attention to, oh, this is where I'm going with it, or this is what I mean, or this is what I'm getting at. Um, and also partially, I think, even though obviously me going to Zimbabwe and being there for one month and then three months is not the same as merging yourself completely into a culture, but having been there for a bit and getting some senses of the everyday helps in understanding a bit more the way in which some of these jokes are funny because they speak to that everyday or obviously a little bit different than everyday again than me coming there for a short period of time and living in a very privileged way um it still gives you a better sense when you have been to the stores when you've been to the places when you've talked to the people read the news you know and, and been, been part of it a bit more than what you can do if you're not there yeah that's quite interesting and it's a very um, nice transition to uh, i guess between your first and second trips Maybe if I can pick up on, on another aspect, you mentioned that you spoke to different comedians and also they explained their comedy to you. Can you maybe talk us through the the comedy, stand-up comedy scene in terms of uh, what's the sort of dynamic of a stand-up comedian and how, in terms of success and kind of how do they navigate that uh, side of things? Stand-up comedy in Zimbabwe is interesting to me for a few reasons. And one is that it is something, it's an industry in the arts that has grown um, and that's grown quite a lot so they speak of stand-up comedy sort of starting in Zimbabwe in the late 1990s with one or two or eventually five comedians and when I got there there was maybe around about 20 comedians or so 
operating in the country. Um, I spend most of my time in the capital in Harare, um, so I know mostly about that scene, but there is also a stand-up comedy scene in Bulawayo um, as well. But in Harare, there is predominantly, I would say, two actors, really, predominantly, that operates there, Sumuka Comedy Club and Magamba Network, or at the time, those were the two predominant actors. So Magamba Network does a lot of satirical online videos as well, um, and Sumuka Comedy also does some online skits. But if we're speaking of stand-up comedy as you know, standing on a stage doing a live performance to an audience that's there. I followed mostly Simuka, who did most of those types of performances. Stand-up comedy is still something that's difficult to live off. It's still difficult to be uh, only a stand-up comedian. So a lot of people who do stand-up comedy do also have another job or another source of income to go with it. Although there are a few stand-up comedians who have gained that level of celebrity where they're able to live off their comedy. Usually that's in conjunction with not just doing stand-up comedy, but also doing other type of comedy and acting and the arts really more broadly. So like a few few examples, like Doc Vikela is quite a famous Zimbabwean stand-up comedian, as is Comrade Fatso and King Kandoro and Gonietti. And also there's someone called Maggie as well, or Maggie's her stage name. And she also comes from sort of skit comedy into the stand-up comedy industry. I think like many places, stand-up comedy is... Uh probably at a hobby level for some people and uh, for some people you I guess find a great success so that's really a fascinating backdrop and uh, I think from this point so what were your specific research questions and what gap were you trying to identify so for me I'm a bit of an odd researcher in the sense that I didn't necessarily come at it with a research question to start with but rather more with the feeling that there was there was something I was upset about. And for me, the thing that I originally was upset about was this notion that a lot of, in a lot of international politics, in a lot of international politics research, the African continent is often being either disregarded or often described in terms of we're applying Western theories to an African continent um, and getting knowledge that way. And for me, what I was interested in was this idea of people from the African continent having their own voices, their own you know, knowledge and experiences and uh, ways of resisting and challenging these ideas that sometimes come out of the West from on uh, about the African continent. So uh, here I'm thinking, for example, a lot of development discourses Sort of the angle I came at from the start with a lot of development discourse describing the, the poor African who's, you know, we can save their life for one dollar a day. And I think I was more interested in how people live in the continent, how they make choices and how take decisions and resist and and what their feelings are in relation to this description. And I think in many ways that was maybe a bit of a naive take on things because as you might expect when you go anywhere 
people are rarely as interested about what other people say about them as they are about what's happening in their own lives. And I think one of the realizations I had going to Zimbabwe was that stand-up comedy in Zimbabwe was not so much about the way in which the West represents Zimbabwe or Africa as much as it was about what is going on in the Zimbabwean context, what's happening in Zimbabwean people's lives, what matters to them. And in hindsight, quite obviously, uh, I wouldn't expect stand-up comedy in Sweden to be about what the United States thinks about Sweden. So I feel like that was a almost a very colonial lens that I came out it when I started. Um, but that that's where I entered it. And um, from there, then the questions sort of grew out of the research material that I gathered. There was the change from looking at Africa as a continent to looking more specifically at Zimbabwe. And then the realization that there was something political going on there that led me to my research question, which was how does Zimbabwean stand-up comedy intervene politically? And I think one of the interesting things that came out of that research was the way in which Zimbabwean stand-up comedy empowers people to say things that on stage that they might not say in their everyday life. And stand-up comedy is a space where people feel that they can express their authenticity in the Zimbabwean context. Yeah, that's quite interesting. We'll talk more about the findings uh, in a little while. I'd like to... Um maybe expand a little bit more on the methodology that you adopted. You previously said you spoke to a variety of uh, stand-up comedians. Maybe if you can talk us a little bit more about that and how your methodology was used over the two separate field visits. So I sort of adopted a mix between semi-structured interviews and then also what I called sort of involving myself in the day-to-day practices of a stand-up comedy club, which was Zimuka Comedy, and also watching stand-up comedy shows and talking to audience members of stand-up comedy shows as well. And it operated almost in those two segments. So I, I first went to Zimbabwe and did a lot of interviews which then opened the doors for me to come back a second time around and know where I could find the stand-up comedy shows and get involved in the more day-to-day practices of uh, Sumuka comedy, comedy as a stand-up comedy club. So yeah, it, it's a, I guess, mixed method, but I'm still within qualitative research sort of approach, drawing also on discourse analysis and things like that and looking at the jokes themselves in relation to this material I gathered through interviews and um, through some sort of participant observation, I guess you could qualify it as. So you looked at the jokes, you spoke to the people, you lived in and you experienced, I guess, the operation side of a comedy club. Maybe if you can talk broadly more on the findings. Uh, I'll put it in sort of two parts. One is uh, you, you mentioned uh, the, the jokes themselves. If there's some things that maybe you can share uh, in that side of things and broadly um, the findings as well. And a last note, was there anything that really surprised you in, in, your, in your research findings? Yeah, so where should I start with a good way to start with this? I think speaking to the research findings and to something that really surprised me, I think it was that, well, there was two things really that surprised me and are part of the research finding. So one is that when you look at a lot of stand-up comedy literature, 
specifically in an Anglo-Saxon context, it will speak about how stand-up comedians often want to make a distinction between who they are on stage and who they are off stage and wanting to have a comedic persona that's a bit different that being on stage might be uh, mean being a bit more of a concentrated version of yourself I did some interviews in Edinburgh French as well where people spoke to that idea of being a bit more of a concentrated version of yourself when you're on stage as opposed to off stage However, when I spoke to stand-up comedians in Zimbabwe, they spoke a lot about authenticity and the stand-up comedy stage as a space of self-expression, being able to be themselves on stage. And that is a goal as opposed to wanting to separate the on-stage and the off-stage persona was something that I found very interesting. And especially in the context like Zimbabwe, where there are limits to freedom of expression, that there was that um, distinction of wanting to be yourself on stage. And another thing that I thought was very interesting was this idea of empowerment that came out in Zimbabwe. People speaking about how they felt empowered to be themselves on stage or empowered to speak out in ways that they would not do off stage. And uh, here, a lot of links were drawn to uh, sex that you would joke about sex on stage and in a way even if your parents were perhaps in the audience then you would maybe talk about sex to your parents at home or uh, even in more public settings that you didn't have that distinction between on stage and off stage that once you stepped up you were empowered to speak in other and new ways and I think there's a lot of interesting things to, to say about that some of which I say in my thesis and some which maybe can be expanded upon still. Once uh, you had um, had those interesting findings, what were some of the broadly some of the challenges that you faced, uh, you know, during your PhD journey and during the field work? Uh, how did that and how did you navigate all of that? I think during the field work, one of the biggest challenges or one of the challenges was because you're quite far away from your normal research community. And there you're faced with sort of everyday struggles and, and problems that maybe you wouldn't normally be. So I think one challenge was navigating everyday life in Harare when I was there, especially since, uh, you know, the currency was fluctuating a bit, especially during my second time of field work and there was some electricity outages and just navigating that everyday life. On, on the first level, but also on the second level where it comes to, okay, remembering what is my broader research question? What, what is it that I am research-wise achieving here? What is it that um, I've read in the literature? How does the things that I'm experiencing relating to the literature right now? And I think one of the biggest helps there really was having regular contact with my supervisors who, who would have, you know, the, this notion of what was my broad project, what was my research question always in mind and always challenging me in those conversations. Okay, well, how does this help you? How does this help you understand what you're looking for? And also in making certain choices where I was invited to do things, for example, be part of a skit comedy recording and should I you know be part and act in that and we decided eventually that no that was not a good idea partially because it didn't necessarily add anything to the research I was doing although maybe as a person it would have been cool to have been part of a Zimbabwean stand-up comedy series or Zimbabwean comedy series but as a researcher 
there was a lot of power dynamics and layers that were involved in that that maybe wouldn't actually help what we were trying to achieve research-wise. So I think that's the thing when you're in the field to, to remember you know, who you are as a researcher and whilst you're also navigating who you are as a person and living in a new context and all the things that come with that as well. In terms of the PhD more broadly, I think there are things that most PhD students probably experience with stress for deadlines, but also jumping between writing in different styles was something that I always found difficult. So at one point you're writing something really theoretical, then writing something really empirical, or going back to writing your perspectives and what's the overall thing that I'm doing here. And I think navigating all of that was, it's... I'm assuming for most people quite stressful <laughs> trying to also get published and go to conferences and being everywhere and nowhere at once and I think a really important that apart from actually having really incredible supervisors who've been really supportive and really good in that and a really good research environment at the University of Manchester where I was the incredible PhD community that there is at the University of Manchester in the politics department the way that we could come together and support each other, go out for a pint, you know, listen to the other person's problems. Older PhDs or PhDs who'd been there for longer could give advice on how to navigate these different challenges. And just that feeling that you're not doing it alone, we're doing it together. And I, you know, the struggles that you've had is a struggle that I've had and you will overcome it. Uh, I think that was a really important part of it. And I think a lot of the time people speak about PhD and research is a really lonely exercise. But I think having really been very fortunate being part of the politics community in Manchester, it did not feel like a very lonely exercise. I felt very part of something that we were doing together and supported both through the PhD community and through my supervisors. And I think that was really, really key. And it's, it's very fortunate that you had a good support system to navigate those challenges. Uh, was there something that you discovered about yourself throughout all that journey? I mean, probably a lot of things, <laughs> to be honest, a lot of things. I'm not very good with stress, <laughs> which maybe is not <laughs> the best <laughs> the best resource for a researcher. I think I, I learned a lot of ways to cope with my own quirks. You know, ways to organize my work, the importance of taking breaks, and that I'm not very good at taking breaks. You know, to, to be able to, sometimes I think you can get really stuck in the spiral of like, I have to get this done and I cannot break until I've gotten this done. When actually, you know, you get, if you get off the chair and you walk 200 meters down the road and suddenly this thing that you've been thinking about for ages suddenly falls into place because you moved and you didn't force yourself to try and try and fix it so yeah I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of things but I think if there's anything that I'm hoping that I take with me from all of this is to always ask for help to you know, not be afraid to go to more senior academics and ask for their experiences and their support, but also to not be afraid to go to your colleagues or to other PhD students and tell them what's going on. I think a lot of the time people try to keep up this facade that everything is fine and I'm doing all right and, you know, I want to look like I'm 
I've accomplished all of these things when I think actually it can be really useful and really nice to be able to just go right now. It doesn't feel great and things are not working. And I feel like I should have accomplished all these things that I haven't. And being able to speak to someone is like, yeah, me too. Uh, and the likelihood is that if you if you are able to tell other people about your insecurities, they will open up back and affirm to you that you are not the only one. We are very rarely the only one who's gone through the stress of a particular aspect of a PhD. Most people who've done a PhD will be there. And I think the same applies when you get out to further research and academia. I mean, I'm very newly done with my PhD, so I don't, I don't really know yet, but I'm assuming that it will operate in the same way that the stresses that you experience as a young career academic, you're not, you're not the only one. And it does help to ask others and hear from them that you are not the only one. That's a very important response. And I think you're absolutely right in the sense that personal health and personal well-being is important and reaching out uh, at various times and knowing when to reach out as well. I think sometimes we have that mental hurdle amongst ourselves not to reach out or you know not to maybe trouble anyone or disturb anyone. So that's, that's very good. Um, that's something really good to discover about oneself uh, throughout uh, a really stressful time as doing a PhD. So let's uh, move on to, I guess, the, probably the latter half of our discussion today, uh, Amanda. Like you mentioned, you've just recently, uh, you're a newly minted uh, doctor and a PhD. <laughs> what do you believe are some of the real world applications of your PhD? What do you think you, know, you are bringing out? And the second part of that question is, how do you feel you are communicating that? So I think there are a lot, a lot of different potentials, but if you want to speak real world in terms of maybe policy, I'm, I'm hoping that my research will be able to contribute to the way that we maybe support people in places where freedom of expression is limited. So I'm hoping that this shows an importance in giving money and supporting the arts and how the arts can empower people and teach people about themselves and how to not necessarily just resist, resist, but empower people to speak out about the way that they want their country to look like and be structured and um, what they, what type of government they want, what they see as their future. Because I think the art is a really real and important space in which people figure out what they want their society to look like and in which they express that. And I think there's an opportunity there to see, okay, how, how can we support maybe also in countries where, where it's not maybe as possible to support for the state, to support arts and support, support artists is important for so many reasons. One for this democratization, but also as, as an employment opportunity as well. Um, and creating an art scene as a you know, part of creating employment opportunities more maybe abstractly i'm hoping that that my phd contributes a methodology for how we can look at comedic resistance and within international relations how we understand comedic resistance in there and um, also a theory for unpacking comedic resistance within ir and how we understand how comedic resistance works in discourses and narratives about nationhood within international relations. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and the phrase comedic resistance is something uh, that quite, quite, um, again, it sounds, it sounds a paradox, but it, there is so much of weight to that. It's really interesting. Amanda, it's interesting you mentioned the term comedic resistance. Uh, can you maybe ex- expand a little bit more on that and in relation to your findings? Uh, absolutely. So comedic resistance is a term, or they speak of comedic resistance within international relations literature that looks at comedy, but also within broader um, literature that looks at comedy. The way that I'm working with comedic resistance is that I am developing a theoretical approach to unpack and understand it. And I'm developing a theoretical approach to unpack and understand comedic resistance, specifically in relation to narratives and discourses. So I combine scholarship from someone called Homi K. Baba and Judith Butler, who are both two scholars that look at the way in which, well, they understand power as something that's discursive and productive and shapes who we are and how we understand the world in different ways. But they also look at how people can have agency and can navigate those discourses and and those productive power relationships, again, in different ways. Judith Butler obviously looking a lot at uh, gender and sexuality and Homi Baba looking a lot at colonial discourses. So I'm drawing on their concepts of Baba's concepts predominantly of mimicry and ambivalence and Butler's understanding of performativity to look at the way in which stand-up comedy can um, repeat narratives and discourses of what it means to be Zimbabwean in ways that unsettles them and challenges them. The idea here being that comedic resistance isn't necessarily something that stands outside of the social structure and how we understand the world, but rather something that repeats it in ways that shows its ambivalences and differences and um, the ways in which the world doesn't necessarily conform to those discourses. That's how I'm taking comedic resistance and how I'm developing it in this theoretical framework. And something that I think might be useful also to other scholars um, looking at the way in which comedy interacts with nationalism and narratives and the structuring of society, both nationally and potentially also internationally. Yeah, so that's, I think, a very important contribution and a a lot of uh, very practical areas that uh, your PhD can be used in the the real world. So, um, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. So... I guess outside all of this research and, you know, hopefully countless hours of stressing yourself out, what do you do in your spare time? You know what, that's actually another thing that came out of this PhD was me getting hobbies. And um, it's actually quite a funny story because it was one of my supervisors that at the beginning of my third year said, what do you do outside of the PhD? And I think it's important for you now to take up some hobbies that are non-academic, that preferably involve like you moving your body in some way so you get some exercise so you're not just sat still and I didn't really have anything at the time but it kind of developed throughout that final year of my PhD so due to the pandemic I found myself moving in with my parents for a while and my mum is very into yoga and so I picked up yoga which has been really really useful for me during um, the stress of the PhD partially because you can do yoga at home you don't have to go anywhere um, and you don't necessarily have to do a lot of it for it to help you de-stress 
I found that just having something that marks the end of my workday and the beginning of the evening is really useful. Again, just like my supervisor said, something that helps me move and not sit still uh, all of the time was really useful. And I think the link that can be made between yoga and mindfulness, so uh, mindfulness type relaxa relaxation and de-stress was really good for making sure that I didn't completely stress myself out and not sleep. <laughs> I get very sleepy by yoga, which is great. Um, and the second thing is something that I have been doing on and off, actually, since I was a teenager, but which I picked up uh, a lot more towards the end of my PhD, and that's knitting. I love to knit. <laughs> I really recommend <laughs> knitting. There is an incredible knitting community on Instagram <laughs> where people put up their knits and a lot of people that knit just for the purpose actually of de-stressing and relaxing. There is something very therapeutic about doing something method like methodic with your hands and you're not just staring on a screen and you're producing something that's very real and tangible and that you can touch a lot of the time with research I find it can get very abstract and you're just putting things on the paper and is anyone ever even going to read this whereas you know knitting a sock I could get halfway through the sock in an evening and I could put it on my foot and I could see that it was there um, and it sounds very very stupid in many ways it, it was really, really useful. And if it is, if anyone ever asks me if there's anything I would recommend actually to, to final year PhD students, I would follow in my supervisor's footsteps and say, try and find a hobby that's non-research related. Try and find one that's a little bit of exercise. And if you can't think of anything, then try knitting. It, it seems like your supervisor has written that question for me and now I'm asking it from you. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess my final question, uh, Amanda, is where to next? What is your, what's circulating in your mind at the moment? It's a really good question. I think it's, it's, it's still a work in progress. At the moment, I've got, a, I've got some teaching that I'm doing at Stockholm University. I'm lecturing in some intro to IR courses, which I'm very excited about. And it's been really nice to get to know the research community here at Stockholm. They've been great, um, really nice, really intelligent group of people. In terms of research, it's still very much up in the air. I'm trying to figure out what's happening next. I feel very much like, well, I had my uh, PhD viral or defense on the 1st of July, and we are now in sort of end of August. So I'm still trying to figure out do I build on this? How do I build on this? Um, so that's still ongoing. And obviously also trying to you know, figure out that and making grant proposals and trying to get some money to do some more research. So doing some teaching here at Stockholm and trying to figure out what, what I want to research and then try to get some money to do it. That, that's sort of the next step for me. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's really good that you're keeping yourself busy and going in that direction. But I must ask, uh, haven't you thought of taking up a, a stand-up comedy yourself? Haven't you been writing your first sketch? <laughs> I think many people wish I'd be trying to do that, not because I'd be great at all. No, I think, you know, they say those who can't do, they teach. <laughs> and I might not be teaching stand-up comedy itself. I'll teach the theory of IR, but no, I don't think that I'll be stepping out on the stage anytime soon. <laughs> Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today on Halftime Scholars.
Yes, thank you. That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. If you like us, give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and join us for the next episode.